1: Hi, my name is Marian Tupi. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and co-author of Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Speaking on Dr. Sky Experience, talk radio 77 WABC.
0: And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the show that you tell us you enjoy so much, the Dr. Sky Experience. Here on America's iconic radio station, Talk Radio 77, WABC, from New York City and around the world. Simply the crown jewel of talk radio. Today, as always, a very special guest on the Dr. Sky Experience. Just a moment, we'll be introducing you to Marion L. Tupi. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He's the co-author of 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, and many others you will find interesting. Co-author of the Simon Abundance Index, and editor of the website humanprogress.org. Our purpose today with Mr. Tupi is to talk about a co-authored book that he has out there that every person within the sound of this voice should probably take a look at most definitely, entitled Super Abundance. And it's privilege and honor here on the Dr. Sky Experience to welcome our very special guest. Mr. Marion L. toupe Sir, welcome to the Dr. Sky Experience. How are you today? Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on your show. Well, it's an honor to have you, sir, because what we're going to share here is something I think very interesting. I've been reading, as many other people, my background is astronomy, space, and astrophysics, and I've always been talking here about American exceptionalism on so many other interviews that we do here. Peace and prosperity is the thing that we like to talk about. But before we begin, Mr. Tupi, please tell us a little bit more about the mission and goals of the Cato Institute. We've had guests before from Cato, but in your words, describe the Cato Institute to our listeners.
1: Well, Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank. Uh, We started in uh, 1977 in uh, San Francisco and then moved in the early 90s to Washington, D.C., where we've been ever since. Uh, We are committed to individual freedom, to uh, free markets and to
0: limited government and peace. Absolutely. What could be better than that in these rather troubling times, as we hear all around the globe? But we bring you on the radio today, uh, you, to share with us the story of superabundance. I'll take the liberty of describing a little brief background of this particular book, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. But before we get started, sir, we read in the mainstream media, in legacy media, that the Earth's population has at least, if I'm correct, and you'll correct us, I'm sure, has reached the 8 billion human souls here on this particular planet. And sometimes we hear all these cautionary tales that, well, in some people's minds, that's way too many humans and too many souls to satisfy all the needs on a small little planet known as the Earth. As Carl Sagan described it, as you probably know, the pale blue dot. But give us a little bit of excerpt from this particular book, that you co-authored with Gail Pooley, Superabundance.
1: Well, people who complain about there being too many people in the world usually mean some other people, not they, their families, or their friends. You know, as far as they are mm-hmm. concerned, they should go on living on this planet. Other people who should who should diminish in number. Um, this idea that the world has too many people has been around for a very long time and has led to some horrible policies around the world, uh, such as forced sterilizations in India. Then, of course, the famous one uh, child policy in China, which has prevented the birth of about 400 million people, and other human rights abuses around the world. But uh, in our book, we use mathematics and facts to show that actually human beings are good for the planet. Basically, what we find is every 1% increase in population decreases the prices of natural resources by about 1%. And uh, when you think about it just for a second, um, you, you, you know, it's unavoidable to acknowledge that it's true. Uh, at the time of Thomas Jefferson, uh, there was only one billion people in the world. Today there's eight billion people, and yet nobody would want to live in uh, 1800 when uh, life expectancy was about 30 years, when most of the people around the world were in absolute poverty, going hungry, uh, many without shelter and adequate clothing. So on many different dimensions of human well-being, child mortality, literacy, maternal mortality, education, the world is a much better place. And the argument that we are making in the book is that
0: humans are to be credited for making the world a better place. Well, I don't take exception to what you're saying, sir, and I'm here to be a good listener, because I think the art of any talk show host, and hopefully as we continue this particular interview, you would at least give me at least the rite of passage, to say that I was a good listener better than a talker, because, as we would say, in many areas of the world today, unfortunately, that conversation is really not there. So many people either talk over each other, or they think that their side of the equation is the righteous side. But I do want you to explain something here, because in my education, I remember back in college having a basic economics class, we all studied the Malthusian theory of economics. And obviously, I know you probably know this better than anybody, but from my limited knowledge in the economic world, we always knew that there was this disparity between population growth and economic growth, meaning and that of population was always that what in greater excess than what the food supply would be. So would you just tell the audience and explain a little bit more about that Malthusian theory of economics, and how, if does, at all, at all, collide with what you're talking about here? and give us some information to show that that's basically not as dangerous a thing as what Thomas Malthus proposed a long time ago.
1: That's correct, thank you. Uh, yes, Thomas Malthus wrote a famous essay on the principle of population in 1798 um, in which he argued that population grew exponentially, that's 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, right. whereas uh, food production grew at a linear rate, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and the difference between these two growth rates, linear and exponential, would ultimately lead to tremendous amount of suffering and uh, famine and starvation. Um, And the perfect example of that was later on a book in 1968, The Population Bomb, by Paul Ehrlich, who claimed that no matter what we did as humans to adjust our behavior, hundreds of millions of people were going to die in the 1980s and 1970s as a result of lack of food. And his specific focus was on India, which experienced a massive population explosion in the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, and India would have been a perfect, a perfect candidate for a place where everything was going to end up in tears. Today, India is the most populous country in the world. It just taken over China with 1.5 billion people, and it is a food exporter, not a food importer. So what wow. has happened? Yeah. How, come, how come that India... Uh, is uh, is now a food exporter rather than starving in the streets with millions of people dead. Well, human innovation, that's what happened, is that you have all of these people, and they've been given a modicum of freedom. India is a much freer country than China. India is also a democracy. And uh, once their economics were liberalized, all of these smart people started to turn their attention and their efforts into making their lives and those of their families better. And so they implemented new things. They implemented new types of wheat and corn and barley and uh, different crops. And they improved the efficiency of their farming and uh, transport. And before you knew it, uh, India's income per capita has increased something like sixfold in the last 30 or 40 years. And as I said, it is now an exporter of food. And this has happened all over the world, which is why famines have basically disappeared from the world outside of war zones.
0: It's It's very interesting, and I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience on America's iconic radio station. That is Talk Radio 77 WABC, the crown jewel of talk radio. And who here is our special guest? Marion Tupi. He's a senior fellow with the Cato Institute, and he's co-author of a great book, ladies and gentlemen, that will open up the minds, especially at this time of the year, as we conduct this interview toward the latter portion of December 2022. We need hope in this particular world when we hear so many negative things in the world. In the mainstream news, and of course, in legacy media, his book, co-authored with Gail Pooley, a book entitled Super Abundance, and you can learn so much more about that at superabundance.com. You know, Marion, this is quite interesting. You talk in the book about something called time prices. Give us a little ex- illustration of this, because I like your answer about the other side of the Malthusian theory, and you've just educated me. I did not know that India now exceeds population of China and is actually a food exporter. And I'll get into a little discussion with you later in the conversation about the woes of what communist China is doing, repressing individual freedoms. But please continue on time prices. So the question
1: is, how do you measure an improvement in standards of living? Um, you know, how do you compare, say, the United States in nineteen uh, in, in two thousand and twenty with the United States in eighteen uh, fifty? How do you compare the United States to China, and right. uh, or or India, and uh, over across you know long periods of time? And the, the the problem is that you either have to adjust for exchange rate and purchasing and power parity, or you have to uh, adjust for inflation. Uh, and uh, you know, many of these things are contentious. Uh, a lot of Americans, for example, have a problem with the way that the federal government calculates inflation. Is it too low? Is it too high? We simply don't know. There's a lot of debate about it, including in the government itself. And so we translate everything into time prices. We don't use dollars and cents. What we use is minutes and hours of work. We ask ourselves, how many minutes do Americans have to work in order to buy a pound of beef today, mm-hmm. as opposed to a pound of beef in 1850. Uh, we ask ourselves, uh, how many minutes do Americans have to, buy, uh, to, to, to work to buy a pound of uh, bread, uh, as opposed to people in China? And the beauty about time prices is that time, an hour of work, is the same anywhere and across time. So uh, those are time prices. Time prices just tell you how long you have to work in order to be able to afford to buy something. And uh, it's easy to calculate. You just take a price of a good in a store and you you, you divide it by hourly income. And so when we did that for unskilled workers and um, manufacturing workers in the United States, we got some extraordinary results. Uh, for example, for the same amount of work that an American would have to work uh, to, uh, to earn enough money to buy a pound of rice in 1850, he could get. 111 pounds in 2020. Yes. The same amount of work, same amount of work that would buy him one pound of beef in 1850 now buys him eight pounds of beef. Uh, and so we can we can measure
0: standard of living that way. So we're discounting the concept of global inflation, though, or, or are we not? I mean, because obviously people here in America and around the world, I mean, not just American yes. people have a concern. But are you then discounting the concept of inflation, or you're talking in just general terms? Because I'm sure many people are just scratching their heads saying, no, my, my index of uh, you know inflation now is much higher. According to many in America, please correct me if I'm not correct on this. Inflation is at an all-time high since, what, the 1970s? And many people may say your concept is good, but how does inflation affect this? And is that factored into what you're talking about? And if not, tell us why. Um- we
1: we actually can transcend inflation. We don't have to deal with inflation at all. We can take it out of our equation. How do we okay. do that? It's because we are dealing just with nominal prices and nominal wages. So um, it doesn't matter what the inflation rate is. Uh, if a pound, of, a pound of bread now costs you two minutes of work uh, mm-hmm. and a pound of uh, bread costs you three minutes of work 20 years ago, then you are one third better off. When you when you divide nominal price in a store, that's what you. Nominal price is basically the, the the price at the moment. If you walk to a store and you see a price, that's nominal price, and you you divide that price by your hourly income today, right? Yes. And then you repeat the process 20 years from now or 50 years ago. Um, since you are comparing nominal prices with nominal wages, then it doesn't matter if the inflation is 100 100% percent or 1,000 percent or 2 percent. Because inflation will um, will will uh, will translate into both prices and wages. So typically across time, what happens is that wages increase at a faster pace than prices. That's been the case in the United States for the last forty years. Sure. We had an inflation of about two percent, and people were were getting increases in salary of about three percent. Right yeah. now. I do acknowledge, of course, that in the last 18 months or so, we are seeing an adverse process of that. We are seeing prices rising at a faster pace than inflation. Um, but that's not the case for the long-term trends that we are looking at. And hopefully, it will also stabilize in the United States
0: as well. Well, then war is the great destabilizer, than in any of these equations. Because as any econ- economist, I mean, you can put this all on paper and in theory. And again, I'm very happy to have you here. Because I like positivity, and I certainly love what the Cato Institute stands for. As I mentioned before at the top of the interview, we've had many other scholars from the Cato Institute talking about the different expertise areas that they, of course, study. But what I'm concerned is, obviously, maybe it's an understatement to you and the listeners, the factor of war, the unpredictability of war, it changes the whole dynamic, obviously, right? That's correct. Also, stupid government policies. So, <laughs> yes. what,
1: what we are arguing, what we are arguing in the book, is something very discreet, very, uh, very focused. What we are saying is that there is no reason, um, uh, there is no natural limit on the planet of how many people can flourish, improve their well-being, uh, because you know we we are human beings, we have ideas which we can then translate into inventions and innovations such as more plentiful yields of rice or wheat or, um, you know, better breeding techniques for, for beef and, and so forth. So, so on our planet, within normal parameters, um, which is to say liberty and peace, we can all flourish. But there is nothing about our argument to predict that things like that can continue into the future. As of you course. said, war is the great destroyer and also bad government policies. The fact that uh, prices of fuel are elevated in the United States and they are stratospheric in Europe, that has nothing to do with the amount of oil, gas, and and coal in the planet on the planet. Absolutely. I agree uh, with you 100%, a Marin,
0: because let's put it this way. So many people on one side of the equation are saying here in America, I'm just speaking about the United States and maybe in other countries like Europe and other areas around the globe, other, other countries, drill, 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 drill because of the necessity, we, and I hear what you're saying, The resources are still in the earth. The earth is not, you know, lacking these resources. You're saying, maybe you don't agree with it, but the ability to have bad governance and bad policy from government prevents us from getting what you're talking about in this book as superabundance. So again, going back to the main tenant here, we should know and we're learning from you on this particular interview. The concept here, one of the main themes here in superabundance is don't despair and don't panic when you hear more people around the earth thinking that you just have more mouths to feed and the world is spinning out of control, you're staying here in a very, very well-outlined and educated plan that, and if I'm hearing you correctly, history shows us that scarcity is no match for what? Human ingenuity. Is that pretty much a summation? That's exactly
1: right, yes. And Malthus was a good historian. In other words, he was reflecting on the world mm-hmm. prior to 1800s when people really were dying due to starvation. But in the last 200 years, uh, through the spread of human freedom uh, and and human dignity and equality before the law, we are basically we have we have broken with that Malthusian prism. Mm-hmm. We now live in a society, at least for the time being, right. when if you have a good idea, you can share it with other people. You can improve on it. You can publish it. You can patent it. You can invest in the stock market and make tons of money by making lives of other people better. But. There's nothing guaranteed about it. I mean, in China right now, they have made this this crazy man who is in charge of China has decided that basically control over the country is much more important than economic
0: growth. And economic growth in China has basically died. Well, that's uh, exactly right, Marion. And I want to jump on this bandwagon here. And I want your opinion, of course, as our guest. When you deny people the human right, their individual liberty, I know I heard the, nut, the word come out of your mouth many times. And we're a big proponent here on this particular show of not only American exceptionalism, but let let's go around the globe. We're talking about individual liberty and freedom. And let me ask you this, because I think we can get also a great education in a sidebar here. Describe the definition in what the Cato Institute would talk about as the word libertarian. Describe that as far as what it talks about when, in the concept of liberty and freedom. Because then I want to get onto the whole China thing and talk about the woes of all these repressive countries around the world that want to deny people the human right. But describe libertarianism from the Cato Institute side, so people may not be aware of what it really means.
1: Well, libertarianism or classical liberalism is basically about maximization of human freedom um, that is compatible with uh, Mm -hmm. rule of law and uh, basic level of order. I mean, basically, you should be able to do whatever you whatever you want, without uh, negatively impacting other people. Uh, So, um, you know, it doesn't doesn't really matter. Like live
0: and let live live concept in basic terms.
1: Live and let live, yeah. Be it it in your economic behavior or in your personal behavior, I'm not going to tell you how to live a good life. Uh, Go ahead and make the best of it. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. if you make the right decisions, uh, then you're going to flourish. If you're going to make the bad decisions, then there are going to be negative consequences for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but let let individual human beings decide as to as to how they want to live. And the, the truth is that on average, human beings uh, are rational in a sense that they want to have a better life. And the the way you create a better life for yourself within the capitalist system is by creating value for other people. So, you know, whether you're discovering a post-it note or um, a microchip, or 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 an iPhone, or or a better system of combustion, or, or or a better car that runs on electricity. It's mm-hmm. it's up to you. Make make your money in that way, and and let's see who buys your product. The problem with the government is that very often they put their finger on the scale. They decide who should win in the in the market and who should lose. You know, yeah. um, they they're obsessing about uh, wind and solar. Uh, which have a potential, but, um, but you know, they are far from from the kind of technology that could power the world. But at the same time, they have basically criminalized nuclear energy.
0: Um, I agree. Problem. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. And we just go off on a sidebar here. You're obviously watching this very closely, I'm sure. And the Cato Institute, progress the U.S. Department of Energy has had last week in making small strides in fusion technology. And can you imagine, Mary, and imagine this? I mean, I'm a person of science that studies, of course, the things like the solar the way the sun produces energy from fusion. But isn't it just amazing and breathtaking to think about a pe- potential power source like that of the stars that we could harness, which doesn't have any deleterious you know, output and emissions. But then again, it seems like it's a long way off, but I'm sure the Cato Institute supports all that type of uh, clean energy beyond what we talk about wind and solar, right?
1: Uh, yes, but although I would say that you know, in in sort of our viewpoint, um, mm-hmm. you know, let let the market decide. I mean, in the I short understand. to medium, in the short to medium term, it's unavoidable that we are going to be using fossil fuels. The Europeans are discovering this; they've been mm-hmm. gerrymandering their energy grids for twenty, thirty years, and they are now facing an absolute ac- apocalypse. What is happening in Europe is unimaginable to Americans. If this happened in the United States, we'd be in the streets with with, with, with forks and and whatever else to, to 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 go after our political leaders and and the Europeans are suffering greatly because they've decided they are going to get away from fossil fuels in short order. Now, um, obviously, we we have a technology which has been time tried, which is extreme, and that's nuclear fission. Uh, unfortunately, we have criminalized it, essentially, in the United States. We haven't built a, you know, yes. we, we are shutting, shutting down more nuclear reactors than we are producing. And in the long run, I agree with you. I think that fusion would be absolutely fantastic. Um, but, you know, as you said, it's going to take decades to get there. And in the meantime, we could be building more fusion
0: reactors. Well, I'm a really privileged privilege and honor to have you here. And I just want to remind the listeners here, you're listening, of course, to the Dr. Sky Experience. Privilege and honor to have these great guests here to share with everybody here on America's iconic radio station here on Talk Radio 77, WABC, as we call it, the crown jewel of talk radio, and rightfully so out of New York City and around the world at WABCradio.com. Our special guest, as you've been hearing throughout this exclusive interview, Marion Tupi. He's a senior fellow with the Cato Institute. He's the co-author with Gav Cooley of a book that I think really will open up our minds. It's entitled uh, Super Abundance. Learn more at superabundance.com. And I have a few other quick questions here before time runs out, and you know how that works in the broadcast world, the clock rules. I just wanted to talk with you about the real problem that I see here. It makes me grind, you know, grind my teeth when I talk about the lack of freedoms in communist China, the people I know, so many you know, Chinese folks out there, Chinese Americans and people from China and all other countries that do not have the same freedoms. It's so sad because the people sometimes get a very bad name, not all of them are believers of communist Chinese uh, philosophy. But that is really, uh, you know, just slowing down all the good that can come from all this. And I wonder, what helpful hints could you give us about how people can, like, break free from this? Because it seems like they have, what, cameras on every street corner? And President Xi wants to, what, control everything, every aspect from the Internet and everything. How do these people eventually look at uh, freedom and liberty, as we're talking about here today, to... Consider what you're talking about, about superabundance and liberty reigns free.
1: Well, uh, look, I'm not a specialist uh, in, in this area, but uh, I, I mean, uh, it's obvious that the Chinese people, at least a substantial fraction of them, uh, are keen on having more freedom. I mean, part mm-hmm. of the reason why China is spending billions upon billions of dollars for this massive surveillance system is precisely because they cannot trust their people not to want greater freedom and not to want more Uh, representative government Um, I I think what's happening in China right now is that that, Xi and people around him uh, realized, although it seems that he is the driving force behind it, realized that Mm -hmm. when you do have a freeish economy, when you do have massive economic growth as China has had you're going to have an emergence of alternative sources of power within society, be it billionaires or, 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 or industry groups and things like that And when you have an emergence of alternative sources of power in the state, which is what made the United States and Europe great, obviously, uh, you are also going to have a decline in the power of the central government. Mm -hmm. And so he had to basically make a choice. Either I'm going to keep the Communist Party in, in charge of my country and I'm going to squash the economy or I'm going to allow the economy to continue to grow, but then I'm going to lose control of my country. And he decided that control was more important than, than, than economic growth. And uh, I, I, should, I should think that in the long run, uh, the Chinese people are not going to put up with this because if there is one source of legitimacy for the Communist Party, is that it is able to uh, generate high rates of economic growth. But now it won't have that source of legitimacy. Nobody has voted for it. And right. now they cannot even deliver basic standards of living. So they're going to be uh, looking at very tough times. And, you know, um, from literature, we know that only like 2% of people take to the streets and uh, threaten the government with overthrow. Those kinds of political movements tend to be successful. Uh, if only mm. 2% of Chinese go into the streets of Sha- Shanghai or yes. Beijing, um, the-, the Communist Party could hold.
0: Absolutely. We love freedom and liberty on this particular program, and we talk here locally about American exceptionalism. And we also have great guests like yourself here. And I wanted to end off with a couple of quick questions here. I know this would take a lot of time. And we'll hope to have you back to expound on this even further. But you're responsible for a lot of this about the Simon Abundance Index, a new way to measure availability of resources. Tell us briefly what that means to get back to and an on topic here with superabundance.
1: Well, it, it's just a concentrated form of what we looked at in the book. Uh, looking at uh, the, the time prices of resources, how long does it take you to earn enough money to buy something And we go, Simon Abundance Index goes back to 1980, and what we do is to uh, basically look at 50 most important commodities in the world, Uh, foodstuff, fuel, minerals, metals, and uh, we sort of estimate um, how much cheaper they are getting. And indeed, uh, whilst the population of the world has sort of doubled uh, during during the last 40 years, uh, they've all become much cheaper. So that's the basic takeaway from Simon Abundance Index.
0: Well, Marion, you're you're a great guest here, and I really appreciate your time, and also all the other individuals that represent the Cato Institute. As I've mentioned many times, and I'll say it proudly again, we've had many of the scholars like yourself on this particular program talking about liberty and talking about the many things that the Cato Institute stands for. If I'm correct, they can get more information about this particular book at what? Again, I'm saying superabundance.com. Is that the correct location for this?
1: That is correct, superabundance.com, and obviously the book is available either from the Cato store online or from Amazon and uh, Walmart and Barnes and nobles and uh, anywhere else.
0: And how about a little tease to the Cato Institute website? Well, what would that be for the listener? Cato.org. Uh, well, thank you so much. Marion Tupi, great guest, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, talking about a book. He's co-author with Gail Pooley, as I've mentioned, superabundance.com. That concludes this exciting interview. I certainly appreciate your time, sir. Stay on the line as we continue to move toward the hard break. And again, once again, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience, exclusively here on America's iconic radio station, Talk Radio 77, WABC out of New York City and around the world. They say we like to say it, and we believe every bit of it, the crown jewel of talk radio. Learn more about the Dr. Sky Experience and all other things that we're doing, both the blog and the podcast, simply www.wabcradio.com Thank you so much, Marion and Tupi, for your time, and a Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you very much, and to you too.